This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Psalm 2, which says, where it starts off with a question. God is asking a question. God just can't understand. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with the rod of iron Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a, but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So the psalm starts with a raging against God, with a raging against Jesus Christ, and there's a pathetic effort on the part of the world to break loose from God, to break loose from Christ, and God looks at this effort and he laughs. He laughs in response to the rage, in response to the effort to break from Christ, to break from God. God the Father then turns to Christ and invites Christ. He says, just go ahead and ask me. All you have to do, he says to Christ, just go ahead and ask me. I promise I will give you this rebellious majority for you to smash like a piece of pottery. Then God turns to man and he says, let me give you some advice in light of all this. He says, be wise. Be wise. He says, be instructed. And he advises man. He tells man what you should do. He says, this is what you need to do. Serve is the word. Serve Christ. The next word, kiss. Kiss Christ. And the next word, trust. Trust Christ. Serve, kiss, trust Christ. That's what this act of this woman is doing. In this act of anointing Christ with this ointment, this is this woman's way of kissing Christ. It was the woman's way of making Christ her personal king to serve and trust. And when this woman opened up, 
this alabaster box with this very valuable ointment inside. She didn't calculate by saying, okay, now this is, I know this costs this much. It's very valuable. I'm going to use half of it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to meet her out half and I'll keep the other half for myself. She said, no way. This is not what we see this woman doing. When she opened that box, she, when the minute she opened that box, she had already determined to pour out everything, all of it, on the head of Jesus. Actually, we learned from Mark's gospel that she didn't just open the box, that she broke it open. She broke this alabaster box open there. Quite a scene. Mark 14.3, Mark 14.3, and being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spicknard, very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. That would have been something. That's noise. A lot of noise breaking this alabaster stone box there. The noise would have been like an announcement that she's gonna anoint the head of Jesus. And that was a very special meaning in that act of, of breaking that box and pouring out all that expensive ointment on the head of Christ because it was that woman putting her complete trust in Christ. With that act of pouring out all the ointment on Christ, she was saying essentially the words of the hymn, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever trust, love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed savior. I surrender all to Jesus, I surrender. Lord, I give myself to thee. She was like saying that. She broke this box and poured it on there. Now, we do have an example, it's interesting in scripture, that we do have an example of those who came and uh, to meter out how much they were gonna give to Christ. Acts 5.1, Acts 5.1, a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira's wife sold a possession. It kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? Was it not thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? And hast thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God? And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost in great fear, came in all them that heard. So when Ananias and Sapphira, what they tried to do is to appear to be like this woman. They appeared to, ah, yeah, I'm one of the I surrender all group. I have this devotion of I surrender, surrender all. But they kept back part of, secretly, part of it for themselves. They'd metered out. It wasn't a sin to keep back part for themselves. It was a sin to lie about it and to say that, oh, I'm giving all the proceeds and then you keep back part for themselves secretly. And that was not the case at all with this woman. When she broke this box open, it was probably the most precious thing she had. She gave it all to Jesus. Why did she do that? Because she had first given herself totally to Jesus. Like it says in 2 Corinthians 8.5, 2 Corinthians 8.5, this they did not as we hoped, not as we expected, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. So this woman is very much like another, another woman in Luke 7.37, Luke 7.37, which says, behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, we're talking about a prostitute, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in Pharaoh's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, this man, 
if he knew, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she's a sinner. Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. Don't confuse this with Simon the leopard. A lot of people have the name Shimon, but this is another one. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence, the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him the most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou wast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thy house, that gave me no water for my feet. She washed my feet with tears, wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. This woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou dost not anoint. This woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much, because to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. What that woman did when she did all of that, what this woman did when she brought in the alabaster box and poured all the very expensive ointment on Jesus, what those two women did, they did the same thing. These two women, without really knowing it, created a separation. Their act created a line. And the line was between those who give their all to Jesus, which are these women, and those who do not give their all to Jesus. And what we see here is that those who do not give their all to Jesus despise those, as it says in our text, they had indignation to those, and they say, wasteful wasteful, like today, when a person who's not sold out to Jesus and he sees a missionary giving his life to reach the natives, for example, for Christ, the comments are, what a wasted life. Oh, it could have made such a contribution to the world. The comments are verse eight, verse eight. This ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. The implication is not wasted on Jesus. And that's what people say about missionaries. They say, for this life would have been used in science or business or the arts, and the implication is not wasted on Jesus. But these women, their devotion to Christ, these women created a line of separation. And the only reason that these women gave their all to Jesus is because they knew how much sin Jesus had forgiven them of in their own lives. And they expressed it that way, and that's the whole point of what Christ was saying to the other Simon in Luke 7.47, Luke 7.47, wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. You show me a person who comes to Christ for forgiveness and doesn't really believe he's a low-down, dirty, rotten sinner, and I'll show you a person who's not full-on all out, surrender everything to Jesus Christ. You show me a person who comes to Christ for forgiveness of sins, and he does believe that he's a low down, dirty, rotten sinner, and I'll show you a person who's full on, all out, surrender everything to Jesus Christ, and that's this woman. That's the woman in Luke 7, who anointed the feet of Jesus with the precious ointment also, washed the feet with her, hairs and, with her tears in her hair. And that's this woman where we've got here in front of us in, in Matthew 26, who anointed the head of Jesus with the expensive oil. Both of them saw themselves as low-down, dirty, rotten sinners who received Christ. And therefore, Christ said, 
to the other woman in Luke 7.48. Luke 7.48, he says, he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. That's the point. Sin is very deceptive. It's very deceptive. Why? Because sin's all around us. And we see sin in ourselves, but we see sin in others around us. And so sin deceives us by saying, you're just like everyone else. So your sin is not that bad. Sin is very deceptive because we see sin in ourselves and then we see sin on the TV. We see sin. And so sin deceives us by saying, well, you're just like the people on TV. You're like the actors and the actresses that you admire. So your sin's not that bad. And when anyone sees himself as he really is, as Israel one day will see themselves, and it's going to be Israel, the Jewish people, that are going to make the statement of Isaiah 64, 6, Isaiah 64, 6. But we, Israel speaking, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Because sin today is the norm, sin is not seen as that horrible until one thing happens, until God is seen. And once God is seen in his purity and his holiness and his sinlessness, then sin is seen, even though it be the norm, then seen, sin is seen as horrible. It was because the prophet Isaiah saw God that he cried out over his own personal sinfulness and the sinfulness of the Jewish people when he said in Isaiah 6, 5, Isaiah 6, 5, then said I, woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It was because Job saw God that he cried out about how he was a low down, dirty, rotten sinner and he couldn't stand himself is what he says. I can't stand myself in Job 42.5, Job 42.5. I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. It was because Peter saw Christ that Peter cried out for Christ to leave him, go away from him, because Peter said, I'm sinful in Luke 5.8, Luke 5.8, when Simon Peter saw he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It will be because God will get close to the Jewish people that they will cry out that they're unclean in Isaiah 64, 5. They'll cry out. But when you look at the context of what happens in that Isaiah 64, 6, Isaiah 64, 5 reads, thou meetest him that rejoices and workest righteousness, for we have sinned but we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind do carry us away. When anyone sees God for who he is, then self is seen as Paul saw himself and cried out in Romans 7.24, Romans 7.24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Now, in this scene, when the disciples hear the alabaster box break and they knew what it was and they all thought about how much money that was worth and it was worth a lot of money those alabaster boxes typically came from southern india 
in the southern part of India where the spicknard grows, and they were carried by camels into the Middle East, so you can imagine how expensive it was. But even though it was his disciples who were taking the stand against the woman, Christ came to the defense of this woman, of this woman, and he turned to his disciples and he rebuked them with a question. And that's in verse 10, verse 10. When Jesus understood it, he said unto the woman, he said unto them, why trouble ye the woman? He asked them, why are you troubling the woman? He asked, why are you troubling her? What he meant was, you, he was saying to his disciples, you're troubling the woman by confusing her to think, did I do something wrong? Should I have sold this ointment and given it to the poor and dedicated that to Christ? The disciples were troubling the woman by causing the woman to question whether her outward act of love was, was wrong, was inappropriate, wasn't, shouldn't have done that. And Christ saw that, that they were introducing to her confusion and trouble, and he would not allow this woman to be disturbed. So as much as, as for her, as for the disciples, Christ said out loud in verse 10, verse 10, she hath wrought a good work upon me. And we can imagine how much that statement meant to the woman and gave her an assurance that, no, I did the right thing. I did the right thing. And when Christ said that, she said, I was right to anoint him with the ointment. She knew her sacrifice that she made was received by Christ. She knew that. As a matter of fact, the Greek word here that's translated a good work on me in verse 10 is the word kalos, which is, means beautiful, beautiful. So what Christ said in verse 10 was, she has done a beautiful work upon me. Beautiful work, Christ called what the woman did. No one told the woman, go anoint Christ. She thought of it on her own. She planned it on her own. She planned how she would get her most treasured possession, this ointment, and how she'd go to the banquet and how she would wait till Christ was seated at the banquet, and how she would conceal the box, and she would come up to the banquet, and how she'd break the box, and how she'd pour the ointment on Christ's head. She thought of all that. She planned all that out. And Christ, thinking about the woman's desire that drove her to do all that, and the woman's plan, and the woman's execution of the plan, Christ had just one word to describe all that she did, and it was the word beautiful. He says, that was beautiful. For Christ, there was no better word that he could select than the word just beautiful. What the woman did in that act of love was what Christ called beautiful. And then Christ said, in verse 11, he said, for you have the poor always with you, but me you have not always. Now that's very important, it's very significant in verse 11 when Christ said those words, me ye have not always. He was really stating a principle there, the principle of opportunities are limited, are limited. What he's saying here was that the woman had a limited opportunity to anoint Christ. We don't read of any other banquet before the death of Christ other than this one. So the opportunity for the woman to anoint Christ at a banquet was limited to this one time, this one time. I mean, soon Christ is going to the cross and after that the opportunity to anoint Christ before his death, that'd be lost, lost. 
But this woman had an urge. She had an urge to do this act of love for Christ. And this woman saw her opportunity. She made her decision and she had resolved. She did not procrastinate. She acted in what she did. She seized the opportunity to anoint Christ. And that took a lot of resolve on her part, a lot of bravery and a lot of courage. And because of the bravery and courage that she showed all alone in acting alone in the face of others who opposed her, who opposed what she did, she for us is a model. She's a model of standing alone in a crowd to take the position of loving Christ. This woman is an example to us also of not missing an opportunity in life. For this woman, the opportunity that she didn't miss was the chance to anoint Christ before his death. And Christ said in verse 11, me, you have not always. Me, you have not always. And when he said that, me, you have not always, that created, as it should, a sinking feeling of uncertainty, of a fleeting chance, like the baseball pitch and the batter has to just get that exact right split second to swing the bat because the ball's in the sweet zone. That's a picture, so much of life. That's Babe Ruth had his most strikeouts in the time when he had his most home runs. Babe Ruth had a record of 714 home runs and 1,330 strikeouts, which means that he had one and a half strikeouts for every home run. But that's one thing's for sure. If he didn't swing the bat, there's gonna be no home run. So Babe Ruth, when he came to the plate, he expected to hit a home run. And when he saw a pitch he liked, he visualized sending that ball out of the park. And just like Babe Ruth, this woman saw in her mind Christ at the table. She visualized her taking her most possess valued possession, the ointment. She saw it in her mind, pouring it on the head of Christ, and that's why she was able to do it. And that sinking feeling of uncertainty for the future that came from when Christ said in verse 11, me, you have not always, that's got a lot of implications a lot of application, not just for this woman. When he has the time, when a lost person, when Christ is drawn close to a lost person and he's got this fleeting chance to come to Christ, to give his life to Christ and be saved, that's a time in life when Christ's words apply. Me, you have not always. For a lost person, it's because me, you have not always that it's said in 2 Corinthians 6.2, 2 Corinthians 6.2, I have heard thee in a time accepted and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That verse in 1 Corinthians 6.2 uses terms twice. Twice it uses the term time accepted. Twice it uses the term day of salvation, which means that every time is not a time accepted. Every day is not a day of salvation. But the accepted time, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, is now. And the day of salvation is today. Because Christ said, me, you have not always. And there comes a time when Christ draws near to a person and speaks through the Spirit of Christ 
to that person, and the Bible says that at that time, the most important thing to do at that time is whatever you do, don't harden your heart with saying later or not now. Because Psalm 95, seven, Psalm 95, seven says, he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation, as in the days of the temptation of the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, saw my work. 40 years long was I grieved with this generation and said, it's a people that do err in their heart and they've not known my ways. Unto whom I swear in my wrath, they should not enter into my rest. Tom Cantor's messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. For other free resources, email us at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. Join our live services on YouTube by searching Friendship with God with Tom Cantor every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries.